We began a series at the start of the year in our first gathering physically, and then we continued that last week when we were together. This series is focused on the authority of God. We've called it All Authority, and in our very first week, we walked through the beginning of the creation narrative, Genesis 1, 1 to 25, and then really from Psalm 104, we, we explored what it means that God is the creator. So to kind of recap week one for you, the big idea, the main point of that week was this, all things have been created and are sustained by God, and he has authority over all aspects of his creation. So that was week number one, we kind of set that foundation, and then in the second week of the series, last week when we were together, we entered into a very culturally hot issue, and we unpacked the implications of the creation account towards the end of Genesis 1, 26 to 31, how God has made mankind. And so the takeaway, that the big idea from last week was this. This is where Christians need to be grounded on as the foundational conviction, the foundational belief we have about God's design of humanity is we believe that God makes a person, male or female, as part of his very good design of them individually. So as we were thinking this through and talking about this last week, we were understanding that because God is the creator of all things, he has authority over all things, and his design of a person includes whether they are male or female, and that's not incidental to our identities. It's not something a person has the authority in themselves to either reject or to claim, well, no, my identity is actually something different. My gender's a mistake or my gender doesn't align with what God created me to be. There's only one appropriate response for someone who understands who the creator is and who we are as creation, and that's to submit to and honor and glorify God in how he has made us. To embrace, as we said last week, the arguments and beliefs of the, the trans movements that reject the goodness and rightness of how God has created mankind to be either male or female, this binary choice between the two, is a posture of abject rebellion and sin against God. And we need to be clear on that. We need to stand firm on that. In a culture that's shifting constantly on this issue, pushing different narratives to us day by day throughout all the media sources, you and I need to be grounded with this central conviction. But today we have another aspect that we need to discuss, and it's related to this discussion from last week. And again, it's a very hot item in our culture. What we're going to address in this sermon is what is biblically tied to gender and the creative work of God and how he has made us but it's a concept that's being separated out as a whole different idea, separate from what we talked about last week, separate from gender, from biology, from what the Bible teaches. We need to talk today about sexuality and marriage. So if you have your Bibles and you're in the book of Genesis, we're going to be in the second chapter to start this morning. Here's the big idea. I'll give it to you right up front. So if you're taking notes and want to write it down, you're going to want to grab this or take a photo or however you want to remember this. Here's the big idea this week, and it's a little lengthier, but it's necessary. God's authority extends over human sexuality and marriage. What he has created and commanded is beautiful, right, and good. Everything outside of that is sin, which must be rejected. So here's what we're going to see this morning as we walk through this text and then we unpack some other texts that are very relevant from the New Testament. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, and I'm going to read to you a relatively lengthy section. You can see it in the text before you or on the screen behind me. 
Here's what we read in Genesis 2.15. Now the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And then the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, verse 24 reads, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Verse 25 ends this great account of creation, saying, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, here, this text that we are reading from and the text that we've preceded this in Genesis chapter 1 all describe the beginning of the world before sin enters into the world. So we have here this description of God's perfection in power and goodness displayed in everything that he makes as he makes it. He has said repeatedly throughout the creation narrative, it is good, it is good, it is good. And with mankind, distinct as we talked about last week, male and female, he creates mankind and says this is very good. So no sin has entered into the world. We see God's creative power, his purpose displayed in these texts. Remember, it is God alone who has created all things, including mankind. And here we see some of the purpose of God, his intention for mankind, explained to us in the text. So what I want to do to start this morning is I want us to, the text we just heard, we're going to go back and we're going to put some key points pulled out of that text into our minds so that we could walk through this and explain these things to someone else. This is what we need to do. We need to be preparing ourselves to do for the conversations that we will have in our world about how our world is running away from this creative design of God. So here's the first point I want you to see from Genesis chapter 2, this text here. God created humanity personally and intentionally. So we saw this last week in Genesis 1. If you didn't listen to that message, if you weren't here or something, I'll encourage you to go listen to that. It is available online, for now at least. Uh, it is a message that may not be allowed to be online in the future. But we unpacked this quite a bit from Genesis 1 last week, so I don't want to belabor this point very much. Just understand this. It is God who creates mankind as male and female, right, these two choices, it is not some lesser power that God outsourced humanity to. It wasn't an angelic power, certainly wasn't Satan. It was not anyone other than the perfect God who creates and does all things perfectly. It's important for us to recognize that. God designed and made humanity exactly as he intends and then declares humanity in this way is very good. And since we are his creatures, we said last week, he has authority over us as the creator, and we owe him obedience and worship, submitting to what he says we were made to do and how we were made to do it, right? So that's point one. Second point I want us to see this morning, though, is this. It is God who defines right and wrong, and he justly punishes sinful disobedience. 
So notice that in this text that we're looking at here in Genesis chapter 2, in the beginning of the passage, God gives a command to Adam. And he tells Adam there what the price of disobeying that command will be, right? Understand this morning, death and judgment are the consequences of rebellion against God. And God tells Adam that up front. This is perfectly righteous and just to have this type of response, that there is judgment and death for rebellion, because God's the creator of all things, right? If it's God who makes the man, if it's God who makes this entire universe that man dwells within, if it's even, as this text, the command follows by this tree, it's God who made that tree, then he has authority over all of that. He can tell the man living in his world about this tree, what you may and may not do with it. This is the extent of God's authority. He's made everything, so he has the right to rule over all of it as he sees fit. So this is perfectly righteous, perfectly just of God to give a command to his creation. But notice it's more than just that. There's actually, we can see here, the character of God in his gracious, merciful nature too. Because God gives a command and then warns Adam what the consequence of breaking that command will be. And doesn't have to do that, does he? God could simply give the command, do not eat of the tree, and that's it. Well, if God said it, Adam should obey it. But God goes a step further and says, listen, Adam, if you disobey me, if you operate outside of how I've designed you to do, if you disregard the commands I am giving you that are perfect and righteous and good, death and destruction follows this. I'm warning you ahead of time what will take place if you break my command. So out of mercy and grace, God gives this warning to the man of what will happen if he chooses to disobey God's command. Now third in this passage, we see as we are looking at this creation account, we see how God creates the woman as a complementary helpmate to the man. Last week in that message, I stressed as we were looking at the text, I stressed the equality of men and women, right? That both man and woman, the male and the female, are created in the imago dei, the image of God. Both the man and the woman have that. The man is not the image of God alone. The woman is not the image of God alone. Humanity in male and female bear this image of God that gives dignity and worth to every human being. So regardless of gender, regardless of wealth, regardless of the color of our skin, where we live, we have within us a dignity inherent to our humanity because we bear the image of God. But as we think about humanity rightly, we understand men and women are not the same. God created the woman to be different than the man. There's intentionality here, right? God does not look at Adam in the garden and say those words, it is not good for the man to be alone, and then create a man to be his buddy and help him out. He says it is not good for man to be alone, and the problem that needs to be solved is solved through a complementary helpmate that God designs for him. So male friendships are very important. They're very valuable. I think there's something that aren't really sought out well or understood well in our culture. I think men need to have good male friendships, and we need to pursue those with more effort and intentionality than we do. But I want us to notice God doesn't create Steve to come be Adam's helpmate in the garden. He creates a woman. He designed woman to fulfill this purpose. So he designs a man and a woman to be complementary to one another, to work together and fit together for the betterment of both of them. So we understand some of these differences if we've lived for any time of all in this world, right? I mean, anyone who's married, even if you've just dated someone of the opposite gender, you understand men and women are different. Sometimes it's hard to figure out why we're so different, right? 
interests are often different. What do you mean you don't like going out and shooting stuff the way I like going out and shooting stuff? Or what do you mean it's not, you know, you don't enjoy sipping tea the way I enjoy sipping tea? Or whatever it is, right? There's just some differences between men and women typically. The way we view the world is not always the same. The things we're aware of, the things that drive us and motivate us, not always the same. The skills, the abilities that we possess and thrive in, sometimes that are natural to us, aren't natural to someone of the opposite. You're sometimes not even possible, despite what our world tells us, around giving birth to children. All these differences are part of God's design for mankind, and they are a beautiful reality that we should learn to embrace and celebrate. Here's what I want us to admit and acknowledge and celebrate, is that men need women. And before we get too many amens there, women need men. <laughs> We're designed to be complementary to one another. Both of us are necessary for the flourishing of mankind. So we're created to be complementary, not in competition to one another. Men and women are created distinct but equal in possessing the image of God. Different but both necessary for human flourishing. Number four, I want us to see this from the text this morning as well. God designed marriage to be between a man and a woman. Now, you see this in the verses here before us, in verses 24 and 25. You'll see in the text before you, it very clearly says the man and his wife are the ones whom God had joined together in marriage. You and I can and we should look right here to Genesis to see what marriage is, how God created marriage and established it, and what the definition of a marriage is to be. Before sin entered the world, right, before any fall has taken place, God has established marriage. And also notice this is well before any government has been established, Right? God establishes and defines marriage in the Garden of Eden, not human beings. This wasn't Adam's idea. He didn't look at Eve and go, you know, I think we should have a covenantal relationship. Be exclusive. Yeah, of course you have to be exclusive, Adam. It's you and Eve. There's nobody else. This was God's idea. He brought them together and joined them together in this covenantal union of marriage. There in the Garden, it's God's idea. It's God's design. So we can look here to see what God intended from the very beginning, and it's right and just for us to do this because Jesus himself looks back to define marriage by this creational standard in the garden. So we should do the same. When Jesus was questioned about marriage, we read in Matthew chapter 19, for example, verses 4 to 6, Jesus answered the question saying, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So if Jesus himself, God incarnate, God in the flesh, would look back to the garden, back to this account in Genesis, to define marriage and be the rule for how marriage is supposed to work, then you and I should look to the same thing. And draw the same standard that Jesus held to. We have to understand this this morning. It is the authority of God that defines and establishes marriage. This is not a human invention. This is not a governmental law that creates this. This is established in the garden before the fall, before government. This is God's design. So he has authority over it. So, why do we need to walk through this? Why do you and I need to be competent with these first few chapters of Genesis, able to walk through these texts, pull out these key points that we've been talking about for the last couple weeks? Why does it need to be so clearly in our minds and before us today? Because marriage and sexuality are under attack in our world 
directly, aggressively, from every conceivable angle, constantly. Not only do we live in a culture that's rejecting God's design and authority in this area, but in our nation in particular, this sinful, rebellious lifestyles outside of the creative design of God, outside of the commands of God, are being normalized and celebrated, and the culture is demanding that everyone within it, us included, would conform to their view, would reject God's view, and would celebrate and affirm whatever it is they want to see happen. Back in the 1970s, there was a Christian man named Francis Schaeffer who wrote very perceptively about the things that were taking place in our world and dangers that he saw coming on the horizon for Christianity as a whole, things that others either didn't want to see or couldn't see. His perception was, was great, and what he said speaks directly to what we see happening or have already happened in our culture. Schaefer wrote this, there is a thinkable and an unthinkable in every era. One era is quite certain intellectually and emotionally about what is acceptable. Yet another era decides that those certainties are unacceptable and puts another set of values into practice. Now listen to this. On a humanistic base, people drift along from generation to generation and the morally unthinkable becomes the thinkable as years go on. I think Schaefer's incredibly perceptive in writing this about how humanity tends to, to operate. It's a, it's a principle that plays out, and we have seen play out in this area of sexual orientation and the profaning of marriage that has taken place in our era now and the culture we live in. This drifting that he talks about here has happened in we see this has happened because the unthinkable in previous generations has become not just thinkable to those not firmly grounded in the Christian worldview who are truly submitting to God and his authority revealed in the word, but those who are living under this humanistic base of our fallen natures have not only decided this is thinkable, but this is to be celebrated. There's a progression that has moved here over the course of just one era to the next, of generation to the next. For generations here in America, since that's our cultural context, the unthinkable that existed in our culture included homosexuality. It was recognized to be immoral and wrong. And there were, throughout history, we can go back and, and see people who are trying to normalize that, trying to, to make those things seem more acceptable. That's, that's happened in our culture. There was movements to do that for a long time, and we see it in other cultures. You see homosexuality normalized in Roman culture, and Greece, uh, as both of those, interestingly, as both of those are on their decline, headed towards their destruction, they begin to embrace these types of things. But in general, in our context, society in the Western part of the world, homosexuality was seen as something that was not publicly acceptable just 40 years ago. But in the 1990s, if, if we look back and kind of analyze things historically, you begin to see very clearly that the media and those who are shaping our culture through media and media outlets, they began to work towards changing homosexuality from being something unthinkable to something thinkable. So you find a progression taking place in our culture. So it's interesting, if you go back and you watch some things from the 90s, you can see there's still jokes and insults about homosexuality in some of these shows that you would never hear today in our culture. 
right? Because it was still understood to be wrong, still understood to be immoral. And so there was still some, some mocking of that that went on. But at the same time, you will find if you watch those sitcoms, there's whole lines of progressive acceptance, slowly, subtly being put before you in your favorite sitcom in the 90s. It's towards the very end of the decade, though, in 1998, that I think we see a massive shift in culture has taken place. The hit show Will and Grace came on air. The show featured homosexuality as a key part of the plot. The title character, Will, was a homosexual man. So the show, and I don't know if you've ever watched it or not, don't need to raise hands, don't need to (laughs) admit to it or not admit to it. Whether you watch the show or not personally, what that show reveals is a massive impact on the culture shifting morally was taking place. The show ran for 11 seasons, and by 2012, the impact of that show was so felt that there's a quote, you can look this up if you want to yourself. Then he was vice president of the United States. At that time, Joe Biden said that this show, Will and Grace, quote, probably did more to educate the American public on LGBT issues than almost anything anyone else has done so far. And he was celebrating this. This was in the context of, of, it was a guarded statement, very calculated, because there was still, homosexuality was illegal in in terms of homosexual marriage, was still illegal in the culture. But as the culture was starting to shift, he was the the spokesperson to say, yeah, we recognize how great this show has been and all the positives this show has produced. Media can have a very powerful impact. And we need to be very careful with our media consumption. Media clearly reveals where culture is and where it is going. But a lot of times we don't want to think about that. We just kind of want to turn it on and veg out, right? We should be more more careful with what we watch and what understanding what we are watching means. So for generations in America, you have that around homosexuality, but also throughout most of American history, we had a very clear understanding of marriage as well. People knew marriage was the union between one man and one woman. And any deviation from that, from polygamy to homosexual relationship, it was all understood to be immoral and wrong. And certainly those things could not be called marriages because the very definition of marriage required one man and one woman. But in 2015, the cultural shifting had gone so far in our country that what was completely unthinkable, certainly to previous generations, but even to many who were born in the 80s and 90s, took place. The Supreme Court of the United States ruled homosexual marriage was legal in all of the United States. In the 103-page document that was released by the court on this ruling, Obergefell versus Hodges, there are, I've looked at the document and counted it, There are two mentions of God in the entire document. One of those is simply in a footnote. There is one reference to the word Christianity, and it is a statement by the court saying none of the members of the court are Protestant Christians. That's the one reference to Christianity. And there are zero references to the words Bible or Scripture in the entire 103-page document. The court, in its action that it took in this ruling, was not appealing to God, was not looking to God's creation or to God's word to try and establish their argument. They acted upon their own logic and they claimed their own authority to produce this ruling and fundamentally shift the culture. And so what we see clearly written in the majority opinion after they've laid out four areas of secular analysis is this. This is what the court says. This analysis compels the conclusion that same-sex couples may exercise the right to marry 
The four principles and traditions to be determined, to be discussed, demonstrate that the reasons marriage is fundamental under the Constitution apply with equal force to same-sex couples. And with that, that statement, that ruling, the court redefined what marriage is, claimed an authority they did not truly have, and pushed our culture right into this moment where we are right now, with a government saying, this is legal and fine and you cannot speak against it, but we know it is something that is still wrong and immoral and sinful rebellion against the higher authority of God. This progression, though, in these areas has happened so rapidly and so extremely that the only way for us to really understand what took place, what got us to where we are right now, is to understand the nature of human sin and rebellion. And thankfully, God speaks very clearly in his word about that. So if you have your Bibles, flip to Romans chapter 1. I told you a couple weeks ago we'd be coming back to Romans chapter 1, and we are going to do that today. We're going to resume in verse 24. Again, if you didn't hear us unpack the first part of this text from Romans 1, go back, listen to week 1 of this series. Verse 24 is going to begin to address this distortion of sexuality and, by implication, marriage that is so very rampant in our culture. So we're building on the verses that we've looked at before that come right before 24, which we unpacked in the first week, that tell us the reality and truth of God as the creator of all things is, in the words of Romans 1 here, being suppressed by the unrighteous, who are are rejecting these things by the futile and foolish thinking of those who do not want to honor God and submit to him. So the text continues here in Romans 1, 24 with this. Therefore, because of this rebellion in the hearts of people, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Again, going back, just drawing on week one in verse 18, what we read there is that it is God's wrath being poured out against this type of rebellion, what I called in the first week functional atheism. So that applies to anyone who tries to live as if God doesn't exist or if God's authority doesn't rule over them, right? This this rejection of God's authority, what we call functional atheism, is what God's wrath is being poured out against, And here in verse 24, you have this wrath expressed in what God says here. So God, as an act of wrath, an act of judgment, gave them up in the lusts of their heart. So understand very clearly this morning, to be given over to sin by God. So that he, by his Holy Spirit, is not working to restrain or convict people of sin, but just gives them over to that is an act of judgment from God. It is a wrathful act of God. And that is terrifying. That should be terrifying judgment for God to give over someone to something that will destroy them, destroy their soul, to God say, fine, that's what you want, here it is. That's what God says is happening in this wrath that is displayed when he gives the unrighteous, rebellious sinner over to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies, to exchanging the truth of God for a lie so that they can worship and serve creatures rather than the creator. And then the text gets more pointed. What does it look like that God gives people over to these passions, to these sins? Well, the text gives us a powerful and clear example that our world absolutely hates to hear is in the word of God. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. 
And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This text right here in Romans chapter 1 strikes at the very heart of what we are seeing all across our culture today in this ever-expanding movement of sexual rebellion. What used to be called the gay movement became referred to then as the gay and lesbian movement. And then the lesbians wanted to be first, so then it was lesbian, gay, and bisexual movement. And then it was the LGBTQ movement. And today, the correct term, if you want to be politically correct, is to refer to the LGBTQIA plus movement. Because now people identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer or questioning, intersexual or asexual. And the plus sign is there to cover any of these other new terms that might be developed today or tomorrow and so on and so forth. The progression and the moral shift of the unthinkable becoming thinkable and now being demanded to be celebrated in our culture has been rapid and is continuing to rapidly change in our culture today. And Christians need to understand and be confident and be ready to come here to Romans 1, this key text, so that we can lovingly point to it and explain as part of our witness and part of our stand for the truth of God that even though the world aggressively hates this text, it nonetheless speaks to what we are seeing today and warns us the consequences of what we are seeing today. This text is not a popular text. In fact, just reading this text alone is enough to get a person canceled, if you've heard that term, in our culture. The reality is, I've encouraged you to go listen to these other messages that we've done, and you can watch the video versions of them right now, both on Facebook and YouTube. But but the reality is there's a high possibility that when I post this message, not only may this message disappear, but others as well from those social media platforms, from services like YouTube. If that happens, the, the, the holdout for us will be the audio podcast. I'll encourage you to subscribe to that because I host that with a Christian provider. And so, so they can't censor that as easily as they can censor us on other things. But just reading this text alone is enough for them to say, this is hate speech. This is unloving. This is not acceptable in our culture today and to remove this message so that people outside this room can't hear it. In some places, reading that very text and preaching a sermon like this one is enough to cause a person to not just be removed from social media, but to actually be arrested, put into prison, some places killed. In fact, I think it's, it's very possible that in the coming days and weeks, we might hear and see this happening in Canada. We've talked about Canada. We've talked about the, the very sh- fast progression, the shifts we're seeing up there, and really they're just a little bit ahead of us, so they should be a warning to us of what is on the horizon But on Tuesday, December 7th of 2021, the Canadian Senate passed what's called Bill C-4. And ostensibly what this bill does is outlaws the practice of what it calls conversion therapy. Now, of course, if you've lived in this world for a while and you think of the term conversion therapy, you might think of a really uh, coercive, harmful practice being used with that term, right? The idea of like shock therapy or something like that. 
Well, of course, we would say that's, that's completely out of bounds. No one should be doing that type of thing to some individual, no matter if we believe them to have a sinful orientation or, or not. That's, that's not just, that's not right. That real change isn't produced that way. But what makes this bill in Canada so important for us to understand is it's worded so broadly that it's not just the outlawing of a bad practice like that. What many faithful pastors in Canada believe will come from this bill, which incredibly was unanimously passed by the Canadian Senate. Not one person, even the professing Christian in the Canadian Senate, had the tenacity, the, the courage to stand up and vote against this. Passed unanimously. Many faithful pastors in Canada today believe this bill will be used to prosecute them for speaking on issues like this, preaching messages like this. The reason they believe that, and I think with good reason, is this. The Canadian government in the preamble of the bill makes this claim, which attacks the foundational teachings of the Bible that we affirm as Christians. They say in the preamble to the bill this, whereas conversion therapy causes harm to society because among other things, it is based on and propagates, notice this word, these two words, myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, including the myth, this is what they're defining as a myth, that heterosexuality, cisgender gender identity, meaning you believe you're a male if your biology is male, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. They say it's a myth to believe that if you want to live the way your body has been created to live, it's a myth to think that's better than anything else. If you're a man and want to live as a woman, that's just as good. If you're a man who wants to live as a turtle, that's just as good. That's what they're saying. It's a myth to believe anything else. The Canadian government is specifically calling our beliefs the simple historical biblical teaching God creates a person, male or female, his design for men and women include sexuality expressed within the confines of their gender, in the further confines of a covenantal marriage as defined by God between one man and one woman. The Canadian government says this is a myth, a stereotype, and we believe, if you notice the words, that it's harmful to society. So now, because of this bill that's passed, acting in alignment with Christian beliefs to call people to conform to how God has made them to be, a male or a female, to live in that way, what he's declares good and right and will bring flourishing for mankind is actually made a criminal offense in Canadian law. This is what the, the change that this bill passed. The Canadian law now says... In 320.101, in sections 320.102 to 320.104, here's their definition of conversion therapy. Not shock therapy, not some crazy outlandish thing that may have come to your mind or my mind. Conversion therapy, they write, means a practice, treatment, or service designed to A, change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual. B, change a person's gender identity to cisgender. C, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth. D, repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior. E, repress a person's non-cisgender gender identity. Or F, repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned at birth. What that means is if you teach, if you counsel, if you help someone live as a man if they were born a man or a woman if they were born a woman, and you say, that's better, you should live this way rather than changing gender, rather than being homosexual, rather than being asexual, bisexual, whatever, if you say any of that, it is now a criminal offense under the Canadian legal code. 
But the Bible and Romans 1 are very clear on the truth of God. Speaking with the authority of God, the creator of all things, who is over all spheres of life and existence, the Bible says to engage in any sexual behavior outside of a covenantal marriage between one man and one woman, or to take any sexual identity outside of heterosexual as God designed, or to assume a gender identity other than the one God created that person to have as seen by the external gender observable at birth, all those things are sinful and rebellious, wrong and immoral. And that statement is now illegal under that Canadian law. If I were to say you came in and said, Pastor, I'm struggling. I feel like maybe I'm attracted to someone of the same gender. And I said, the, the Bible declares that to be a sin. You're a woman. You should, you should understand God's made you to find a, a partner, a spouse who's a male. That is illegal. That is defined here as conversion therapy. So Canada may say that. They may go as far as they went and, and say our beliefs, they're all myths. They may reject our claims. They may begin to persecute Christians who believe this and teach this. But it is God's design. And it is what we must affirm if we are going to follow his authority as the creator God. Because we are his creatures. We must submit to his authority and embrace and celebrate, even defend now, the things he declares is very good and are right. We must live in submission to God, not to lesser authorities when they contradict God. That includes authorities like the Canadian government or the U.S. Supreme Court. You and I cannot affirm that marriage can be between a homosexual couple. God says it is not. Despite the authority that they bear, they are a lesser authority than God Almighty. So we must disobey them to live faithful to him. Now, we need to soberly and rightly understand these things because of the day and age we live in, because we need to be clear on why we do this. It's not just tradition. It's not just comfort for us. We need to recognize God has spoken clearly, and God has spoken clearly to tell us that it is God's judgment. It is his wrath to let a society walk in this type of rebellion and sin, the type of rebellion and sin our culture is walking in now. You can see how a society progresses under God's judgment when you read verse 32 of Romans 1. It says, For though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, that's the penalty for sin, that's the penalty for rebellion. Not only do they do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Look at it, almost any leader in our government today, even if they're cisgendered, heterosexual, so they live in the gender that, that their external body has, they're married to someone of the opposite gender, they will affirm that homosexuality is a good thing. It's an acceptable thing, right? You'd be hard-pressed to find a politician who would say, today, in our culture, this is wrong. This is immoral. God says this is evil. No, they give approval to those who do these things. They do this because we're in a society that's in rebellion against God and that wants us to rebel against God too. We're constantly being pressured in the mainstream of our society to not be, again, the phrase, right, on the wrong side of history. You've heard that? And so many Christian businesses and schools and even churches are being told that they must either submit and affirm the cultural view, denounce or explain away the word of God and the historical teaching of the Bible, or face complete destruction. But the bottom line is this. 
The Bible makes clear homosexuality, bisexuality, and all other categories of sexuality outside of what we now refer to as heterosexuality being expressed in the bounds of a covenantal marriage between one man and one woman is sinful rebellion against God. It's all wrong and it's all destructive. So despite what Canada says, despite what the U.S. Supreme Court says, we must maintain as Christian people, this is the truth and we must go further than just simply defending the truth. We must be gospel people who extend the call and the offer of real change from these sins, from these rebellions, to lives of submission and worship of the true God. So to say exactly what Canada says we can't say, and of course there's no repercussion for me, the Canadian government isn't coming after me for what I say in America as an American citizen, but we want to be clear. As Christians, we believe there is conversion that can happen. People can leave these sinful lifestyles and these acts behind and receive a new life of salvation and submission to the authority and rule of God. To be clear, we don't believe that's through therapy. We need to reject that idea. We believe true conversion happens through the power and work of the Holy Spirit, sanctifying and conforming God's people into the image of the Son of God, making people holy as he is holy. Romans 1 is clear about this. 1 Corinthians 6 is also clear about this. And here I want us to stand firm. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. Hear this, Christians. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And listen to verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So this, this message today, friends, it's that's a long one, I know. It's got to have both parts to it. The truth of what the Bible says, the recognition of God's authority to, to command and speak to these issues, and this message of the gospel. God has created humanity. He does rule over our gender and our sexuality. And as Christians, we are made to stand firm on that belief and then also to hold out the hope, the offer, the invitation of salvation, change, conversion for those who are captive to sinfulness and rebellion in this world, including the sinfulness and the rebellion that's related to sexuality and gender. Christian people, we must be people who do not hate, who do not fear, who do not want to see destroyed people who engage in gender or sexual rebellion and sin. It's not godly to pray for fire to rain down from heaven and destroy the gays. Go on YouTube and you'll see people who claim to be Christian saying that. That's That's not a biblical position. It's not a Christian position. We are the people who must offer the hope of the gospel to those trapped in sin. And we need to recognize that within the church broadly, within our church specifically, there should be those who have been in such lifestyles but have been redeemed by the grace of God, who once held an identity of rebel sinner in this way, who have now been conformed to the image of the Son because they've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. So again, want to be very clear. As I said last week, there is no such thing as a transgender Christian. There is no such thing as a homosexual Christian. It is terribly unloving and unfaithful to the word of God to say that a person can remain in those sins, remain in those identities, and be a Christian. 
Because none of the rest of that follows from this passage. Right? A person cannot be a Christian idolater. A, Christian doesn't, a person doesn't get to be a Christian thief or a Christian murderer. You have to reject those sins, reject those identities, and be conformed to the image of the Son, following the actions of a true Christian. A true Christian is one who's submitted to the authority of God, changed by the saving power of the blood of Christ, enabled by the Holy Spirit of God to live a new life of growing conformity to the image of Jesus and his holiness. A Christian has to be transformed from the sins, whatever sins they were that held them captive before, because Christians are washed, sanctified, and justified by the power of the Holy Spirit through the blood of Jesus Christ. So Christians understand clearly not just as a, mm -hmm, amen, as a, this motivates our hearts. This should motivate our responses. All of us are sinners who desperately need grace and salvation. 1 Corinthians 6 makes plain, homosexuality is a sin that people must be saved from or they will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not have eternal life. Everything in the LGBTQIA plus movement must be rejected. People must be saved from it. So we should be people that long for that, pray for that, work for that to happen. But the list in 1 Corinthians 6 is a list that includes other things too, right? Other sexual immoralities, idolatry, theft, greed, drunkenness, swindling, they're all in that same list of 1 Corinthians 6. And some of those things are true of you in this room. That's who you were, but you have been saved and washed, regenerated by the blood of Jesus Christ. That same power can be at work in people in those other sins too. So we have to understand we are called to recognize and live in the saving power of God, calling others to join us in experiencing the saving power of God by sharing the gospel message by which we have been saved. That's our mission. That's our application. That's what we got to go out of here and do. Be people who know the grace of God personally and live that out. There's only one way of salvation, and it can save the liar and the thief or the homosexual or transgender. It is by putting faith, trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, the only one who can forgive sins of those who would abandon all hope of self-righteousness and trust in him, believe in his atonement, believe he to be the God who came to rescue, redeem, and transform sinners, that there are none too far gone for him. His power is not limited in any way. There's none beyond his authority, none beyond his reach. He can save. So we should profess that and share that message. The key point that we need to ask God now to settle into our hearts and help us live out is what I started with at the beginning. God's ultimate authority extends over the, all spheres of human sexuality and marriage. He has created and commanded what is beautiful, right, and good. And everything outside of that is sin, which needs to be rejected. And the sinner needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stand firm on what the Bible teaches and proclaim gospel news, good news, to those who need to hear it. I know it's a lot today. I know it's a lot last week too, but this is a vitally important topic for us to hear about from God and submit to his word on. We must stand firm in our culture and we must be witnesses of his grace in our culture. So let me pray in conclusion today. And then we're going to take a break for lunch. We will come back together in here for a business meeting as soon as we've eaten and uh, members, well, I'll explain the process in just a second, but we're not going to have a response time in the altars today. You've got a lot to think about, a lot to pray about, 
Maybe you need to shore up the conviction on what is true and right, or maybe you need to live out the grace and gospel message that you have been saved by in your relationships with someone else. But I'm just going to pray that God would do work that only he can do in applying this to your heart, your life. So Father, I thank you for the clarity of your word. You have not left us without clear instruction on how it is you've made us, what you've made us for, how we ought to live, what glorifies you. You've even been so kind, God, as to show us the price of rebellion and sin against you, to reveal to us how destructive it is for us to operate outside of obedience to your commands. And above all of that, God, not only have you made clear what you expect, you've made clear the consequence, but you have then taken that consequence for people who would trust in you. You you provide a way of redemption, of salvation for any sinner who has broken your law in any way, great or small from our view, is all the same, deserving of the same punishment and consequence. And yet you took that, Lord Jesus, for everyone who would call upon you, who would place faith in you, believe in you, trust in you to be their savior, to give them forgiveness, you've made a way for the thief, for the murderer, the liar, the homosexual, the transgender, and the list goes on to be saved. Thank you. Thank you for such grace and mercy. Help us, I pray, Lord, every one of us in this room, be so convicted of this truth that we would stand firm in a culture that tells us to move, to bend, and that we would be people who have so deeply understood the gospel work in our own lives, our own hearts, so appreciative of what you've done in bringing us salvation that that the gospel would overflow naturally to other sinners, other rebels who need to experience your love and grace and mercy. Thank you, God for the good news of the gospel. May we be people who proclaim it faithfully in this dark culture that we live in right now.